bangers in the chat. Bangers in the chat for that banger of an intro. Oh, sorry, folks. It has been a little while since we came on here and did a did a stream. I was unfortunately AIDS. laid to rest because of AIDS. I got the AIDS, and uh, it sucks. Don't get AIDS. That's my recommendation for you. You don't even have to get very far into today's show to get my recommendation of the day, which is don't get AIDS. Don't get AIDS. Oh, man. I have... It's been a very long time since I've been this sick. I've... I... This is... Yeah, I, I just turned 35. I'm kind of uh, uh, confronting... Oh, older people than me are going to roll their eyes at me just the same way I do when I roll my eyes at people younger than me when they talk like this. But you just got to give me my minute here. I'm, I'm confronting my mortality more and more every day. Being 35 and now being as close to 50 as I am to 20, I'm starting to realize, you know, I'm not getting any younger. I'm starting to feel the, the years behind me in a way that I haven't before. And this sickness is probably the first time really that I've ever, I've ever actually been like starting to kind of visualize what it would be like to like die of a disease. You know, that's kind of what I've been sitting. I've been like laying here in bed, trying to sleep and just wheezing. I've got like, like gunk in my lungs and sitting here just contemplating like, like what if this is, what if this is what it feels like to die? Like, what if I'm actually dying now? You know, I'm 35, you know, maybe, maybe I've got congestive heart failure and I didn't know it. <laughs> yeah. You're getting up there, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just Days are winding right down. around the corner, which means 70 isn't far away. So, you know, I'm getting pretty close to life just... expectancy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so today is basically the first day that I've really been uh, super functional and uh we were cooper and i were both keenly keenly missing the we were feeling the absence of of having not come out here and talk to you guys so we wanted to come out and talk to you guys i don't know how long my voice is going to last so we're going to get through as much of this as we can i was talking to cooper before we went live and then i was talking to uh another person before that for a while and then i was talking to cooper before that for a while I don't know how long my voice is going to keep up, but <clears throat> we'll do what we can. Uh, Kyle says, I haven't completed my transformation into Randall Carlson yet. <laughs> I actually, I was just going through some old pictures on my phone yesterday. And one of the, uh, one of the pictures I saw was when Jason Stapleton messaged Amy and I and said, Hey, Amy, I don't know if you realized it yet, but um, you married Randall, like a younger version of Randall Carlson. And he just sent a picture of Randall Carlson looking all, all space Santa like, and um, one of the one of the finest compliments I've ever been given. I think I don't I can't think of many people who would be better to be compared to than than the space Santa himself. Are you a Freemason? I could be. Depends how much money you want to give me. You're gonna get excommunicated. Oh. Well. <laughs> I was going to say, I guess it'd have to be a lot of money then. <laughs> Just going to make the sign of the cross here and <laughs> repent of the bad jokes that come to my mind. <laughs> All right, there's cop number one. 
Uh, what's up, Brody Alexander in the chat? Let's. So speaking of Brody Alexander, uh, we actually uh, uh, got to speak to the man himself on a, a King Pilled voice chat the other night. And I guess now it's it was probably further away than the other night. The last week has kind of been a blur for me. But uh, talk to the guy. Brody has the most epic Canadian accent I've ever heard. It is it is fantastic. Even, He's from Canada. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that. We don't want to dox him any further than that. But uh, yeah, your your dad is Canadian. How do you how do you feel about that? What if he was from like uh, like I don't know. I don't know, like New Mexico, but had that accent somehow. <laughs> that would be confusing. Yeah. Uh, oh, he says, thanks. Thanks, A, bud. He says, it's okay. I put my name and face online. I'm from Cowtown, baby. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's from Alberta. So I don't know if you've ever... In- the Alberta accent, it's pretty similar to uh, uh, like Minnesota. Minnesota, eh? Yeah, sure, you betcha. Yeah, my neighbor's from Minnesota. Yeah. Anywho, how are you, Cooper? I'm I'm okay. I heard that the Pope is gay, so that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he's not the only one. Um, So we'll, uh, we'll jump into that. So for those of you who... I guess maybe have been under a rock or whatever. Um, one of the big, so I, I look at our audience, the audience of people that uh, the, the channels that other people watch that also watch our channel. And it's overwhelmingly, uh, uh, let's see, there's two bit podcast. There's David Gornoski, there's Buck. And then there's uh, Jim Bob, Kotel and Jay Dyer. These are, those are the, that's, that's the swath of our audience, which is, I'd say it's a pretty good, pretty good group of people to be talking to. Um, so I don't imagine that there's really anybody out there, really a lot of people in the audience who don't, I guess the people in our audience who, who really care about the goings on of the Catholic church and the, the nitty gritties of the doctrinal statements and that sort of thing. Um, they, Oh, no way. Pastor T.D. Jakes got outed as a power bottom? I don't know who that, that is. That is a visual. Oh, hold on. Oh, my. <laughs> here. We're going to share the screen here so you can see T.D. Jakes. There's T.D. Jakes for you. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Apparently he got outed as a power bottom. That's that's a new one. Um, stop sharing. Uh, so, anyways, so there's not really a lot of people I, th- I think in our in our audience who like they're, they're, I don't think they're going to come here for the for the doctrinal breakdown of everything. Um, if, for those of you who really care about the goings on of the Catholic Church, not, we're not that kind of channel. No, no, we're just this. This not our thing. And and those of you. Like I said, with the people from the, the, the other shows you guys watch, you guys have plenty of other resources to go for that sort of thing. Um, really, we just wanted to use this as an opportunity to, number one, uh, laugh at Michael Lofton. 
because um, the dude on on December 15, Michael Lofton comes out with his new line of merch. He posts a picture of himself all like pimped out and everything wearing a shirt. It's a black shirt with a white white text and it just says Pope Splainer. So he's leaning into the meme. He he identifies himself as the Pope Splainer and then like two or three days later <laughs> the the Pope <laughs> stirs up all of this uh this hullabaloo with respect to uh uh blessing uh, same sex unions and the guy who just self identified as the Pope Splainer now has to try to tie himself into knots to say <laughs> that <laughs> it's no, no, no. You see, he's blessing the individuals. He's not blessing the unions themselves. He's mm-hmm. blessing the people who are in the union. And that's the document was perfectly clear. It's, it's all of you who don't understand it. I'm the only one who gets it perfectly clear. Right. In fact, it was brilliant the way that it was just, just covered everything that you would want to have it cover. It just everything it was, you would, it you very could well want, written. you could possibly want. It's really good. Very good. <laughs> it was so well written that um, you need me to come and explain to you how well-written it was. Yeah, because you you're all to... dumb. <laughs> right. It was so well-written that nobody on the planet understood it correctly. Right. <laughs> but me. <clears throat> and I, I, so I just... I'm, I'm very friendly. I feel very friendly toward, uh, toward our, our, our Catholic brothers and sisters um, much more than I used to. I grew, so growing up, Cooper, I, I think, feels the same way. We both grew up um, very ardently anti-Catholic or being in a culture that was very ardently anti-Catholic. And yeah. the process of coming into orthodoxy made us see Roman Catholicism in a new light. I, you know, I'm, very, I'm, I'm very keenly aware of the differentiations between the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, and I think those differentiations are valid, and there's a reason why I'm Orthodox and not Catholic. But I have very much come to see Catholics as um, something closer to like estranged brothers than um, you know, like like outright hostile enemies. The way that I uh, I used to see them that way. Um, now this is speaking for like the rank and file, the institution itself. I have no love lost for whatsoever, and um, I. Well, there's, there was an interesting thought here that I, I wanted to, to bring up. A good friend of ours, Josiah, has dropped this in a couple places. Now, Josiah is Cooper's um, avowed mortal enemy. He's one of them. Which, who's a bigger enemy of yours, Kyle or Josiah? Oh, Josiah, no doubt. Okay. He's, is, he, is he the mortal enemy? Like, is there anyone who's worse? Well, I'm thinking of how many mortal enemies I have and... You've got you've got a lot. He might be uh, he might be at the top of the list. Wow, he's special. That big fucking Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Well, shout out to Josiah Cooper's number one mortal enemy. He he had a really interesting thought, and I thought I just I wanted to share it with with more people because um, I think it's kind of interesting to ponder. The first I already time have a feeling I'm going to hate this. You've already heard it. You the first time he brought it up. Well, the first time he brought it up was in the Kingfield voice chat, and and did um, I start spurging out? You started spurging out like immediately. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and then uh, <laughs> he's 
So did so did someone else. I don't want to dox him because I, I know he's he's he doesn't like to be doxed, but there was someone else there, probably the the type of person who would spurg out about something Josiah said with respect to the Roman Catholic Church. You you could probably put two and two together. Um if you guys wanna we're talking a lot about the about the Kingpilled voice chat because we have a lot of fun in there. If you guys want to join us, subscribestar.com slash kingpilled. Um join up. It's only 10 bucks. Don't, don't worry about the other tiers right now. You could sign up. If you want to pay more for whatever reason, go for it. But right now you just, if you pay 10 bucks, then uh, when we end up re-releasing it um, at whatever point we, we relaunch the group here, we've gotten a little delayed, but uh, when we relaunch it, you'll get grandfathered in. Um, so if you go want to go sign up, then uh, we'd love to have you in there. I might even, depending on how I'm feeling tonight, might even try to do a voice chat uh, later this evening. Anyways, so um, this is what Josiah said. He said, in the same way that Christ's human soul was separated from his human body, his church has separated east from west. So he, in the, he, part of the I'm way- I'm already, my blood's this, already boiling. I'm already <laughs> angry. <laughs> so part of the way that he, when he elaborated on this when we were talking is he said, um, so he's speaking of this kind of in like symbolic terms. So you have- the 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 Western or the like the Roman Church that what side does it err on? It errs on the side of being um, overly material, overly scholastic, um, uh, and uh, like overly um, Aristotelian. And then you have the the Eastern side, which if you could say that there's an excess within the Eastern side, it wouldn't be that the Eastern side is like too materialist or it it would be it would be that it's um it it errs on the side of mysticism or being too detached from the world um and so he's using this kind of illustratively so he's saying that the in a sense you know, if you're thinking about it symbolically it's kind of like uh, taking the stereotypes of the of the two um sides here you have the mystical side which is kind of like the soul and you have the material side which is kind of like the body so when when Christ died, his body was separated from his soul, because um, that's what that's what death is. Um, so he says, as Satan once thought he had captured Jesus, whose body was buried in death, so too the world thinks it has captured Rome, and it may even appear to be the case. Perspective limited by time isn't a whole picture. So in essence, he's what he's saying is so. For anybody who doesn't know the doctrine of the harrowing of, of Hades. Jesus died. His soul was separated from his body. So there was for anyone a who doesn't know, Matt is the designated translator from Josiah because nothing that guy says makes sense. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> for whatever reason, I can understand it. Um, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I was waiting for that <laughs> in the comments. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um. So I'm with you, buddy. <laughs> <clears throat> There's three. So you have the, the um, Christ dies, his, his soul is separated from his body. He goes and he harrows Hades. And the way that uh, it's been, I don't remember which uh, church father, if it was a specific father who said this, or if it's kind of an agglomerated perspective, but one of the ways that I've heard it depicted or talked about before is um, that essentially the, the devils received Jesus's body thinking they were getting a human body and it was kind of like surprise um you know they 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 thought that they were getting a human body and they wound up with the son of god and so 
But there was, so there's a period of time there where Jesus, if you would have gone and you would have looked at Jesus' body laying in the tomb, you would have seen his physical body laying there dead. Meanwhile, his soul was harrowing Hades. Obviously, speaking of these sorts of things in time-limited terms is going to be... We have, to, we have to exercise a lot of grace with each other with some of these kinds of conversations because clearly you can't constrain some of these things by time. But from our perspective, from the human perspective, Jesus' body is laying there, and it looks like his body is dead. And for three days, people are mourning the fact that he's dead and gone. So in that way, Josiah is saying there's an analogy here where if you're – so the, 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 the Great Schism happened in 1054, so it's been a 1,000 years from the perspective of the Orthodox Church, for a thousand years, his uh, the Rome has fallen. Rome has been taken in by the devils. They think that they've received the body of Christ in the form of the Roman Church. Uh, but, and at the same time, you have the Eastern Church, which is alive and well, from the Orthodox perspective again. So on a on a on a, a future time horizon, it is not inconceivable to see a um a, a reunification of his body and 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 his soul, so to speak, uh, symbolically speaking. And the big dilemma here is that there is a a very real ecumenical movement that wants to reunify the church under false pretenses. But I think that it's... I, this analogy drives me insane. I understand he's making an analogy. Go ahead. But... <clears throat> like, the East is the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, I agree. So, right, so that's why the analogy, I think, doesn't work. Because you're like, oh, the body and the soul separated, and the West is the body, and it's like, no, the body is the East. Yeah, it's not saying that the... That's why it's an analogy. That's why it's not... Yes, uh, I understand. I understand. It's just a... <sighs> I love you, Josiah, but you got to do better. Be better. Be better. Josiah, you need to come up with analogies that don't trigger the autism so much. That's right. That's the issue right. here. Yep. It's not that there's anything wrong with the analogy. It's just that it triggers the autism. No, there is something wrong with the analogy. That's what I just said. It's an analogy. So an analogy doesn't analogy. have to be a one-to-one -one correspondence. Okay. Whatever. Moving on. That's all you got? <laughs> oh, I just got the black lady snap. <laughs> Every time Cooper and I connect, he always goes, sits here and snaps, like trying to get his, his mic to test his mic. So I've started. Every time we connect, I'll just sit here and snap at him. Um, Yeah, the comments don't like the analogy either. See, I think that it's <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, um, I took the, the uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, Jordan Peterson's uh, personality, big five personality test. And I, I think I was like 98% on 98% Jew lover. Yeah. Um, I was like 98% openness. So like 
my default state is being very open and receptive to things. And I like stuff that makes me think. And his analogy made me think. So understanding that it's an, an analogy, then it doesn't pose a problem for me. I don't have a problem differentiating between the truth of the Orthodox Church being the body of Christ and also recognizing the potential truth of this analogy. Like, I would love to see... And my Roman agreeableness Catholics. was like first percentile or something like that. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. So my agreeableness is pretty not going to win me I over. What it was though. Um. I think that there's. I guess where where I like seeing this happen with the gay pope, seeing all this stuff going on, doesn't make me happy. Like I don't. Like it's fun to make fun of guys like Lofton and and to to watch the the really insufferable Catholics squirm over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's good to it, like I like the fact that this sort of thing happening means it's going to drive people back toward the Orthodox Church because it's it's going to happen. Not not like everybody is going to, but definitely more people are going to become Orthodox because of this sort of thing happening. So in that sense, I like seeing it. But, I mean, there's no question that this sort of thing pains the heart of God. Mm-hmm. To have the church split in 1054 pains the heart of God. God wants to see the church reunited. And I'm not saying that under ecumenical terms. I'm saying that to have the church truly reunited as the church would be a great and glorious thing. And... On, in some manner of speaking, it's going to happen someday. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like or exactly what the steps are going to be between now and then. But, so, I guess a, maybe five-something years ago, something like this happening would have actually made me, um, I would have I would have been like exultant, kind of. I've been like, yeah, that's right. Screw the stupid Catholics and their dumb pope. But now it just kind of like, I've got relatives who are Catholics who are very devout and I know this sort of thing really pains them and I've got a much deeper appreciation for the church. So um, I don't know. Those, those are just some of the thoughts that were on my mind with respect to that. Uh, let me see some of the comments here. Um, would you have a problem with the analogy of the Trinity being water, steam and ice? Of course, people take analogies and run with them. No, I wouldn't have a problem with that analogy. Like, this, I do. Like sun, sun being used as an analogy for the Trinity, sunlight. Is there's no problem with that? I have a problem with that analogy because it seems to imply modalism. The sunlight one's a much better analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some analogies are better than others, but I don't think that the um. I don't think that the point hinges on the analogy. Like, if you suspend disbelief. And say yes, it's an analogy, so it's going to fall apart at some point. Then saying the analogy falls apart at some point doesn't do anything for me. It just yeah, but I have well, autism. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I got a got a I got a discount for the autism. Thank you. Um, one thing that I did want to share was this. So to see where this is going to be taken, and this is this here is the point where um, I make the appeal to uh, uh, wayward Roman Catholics. I know you guys, you know, I, I, I know that you, you 
know that this sort of thing is out there. I know I'm not saying anything new to you, but this is not going to end well. You can see very clearly the direction that this is going. So this is James Martin, who's obviously, uh, or not, I guess not obviously. He's a is Jesuit. He a, what is he, a priest, a bishop, a monk? What is yeah, he? he's, a, he's a priest, I think. Okay. He's Father James Martin is what he's referred to as. I haven't seen anybody um, referring to him as a bishop. Um, <clears throat> uh, so right after this this whole thing was was released and 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 uh lofton is squirming around trying to uh you count the number of angels dancing on the head of a pen uh over this this thing about blessing unions you have father james martin who comes out here and says straight up he's blessing the union so he's honored to bless his friends um jason and damien this morning in our jesuit residence according to the new guidelines laid out by the vatican for same-sex couples freaking jesuits but before this i've been blessed by their their friendship and support so this is jason theology professor at saint joseph university new york he lives with his husband damien he his research and advocacy focused on lgbtq catholic ministry he is a catholic gay catholic theologian and assistant teaching professor of religious studies at saint joseph's university in new york so they were married at Judson Memorial Church. Here's married. one of the many weird photos from the Instagram of this church. Uh, this guy doesn't seem to be a big fan of Pope Benedict or Pope to Catholics, St. John Paul II. One of the things he wrote was, since hearing of his death, I've imagined Joseph Ratzinger sitting in a heavenly classroom where his teachers are queer martyrs and saints. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of them. Here's a picture of, uh, he posted on Instagram of Sinead O'Connor uh, tearing up the picture of, of Pope to him, St. John Paul II. And she said, he said, fight the real enemy, R.I.P. Sinead O'Connor. Um, and then uh, compared the Time Magazine covers of uh, uh, Pope John Paul II and Taylor Swift. He said, she's wearing the hell out of that jacket. I wrote, he wrote Theology of the Body. This is an upgrade. Um, so this is the guy that, that uh, Father James Martin is is um, blessing. It gets worse though. I'm not going to open these pictures up because you don't need to see them. Um, that that couple that he's blessing. This is them at a gay nude beach. Um, they're not nude because they posted these pictures on Instagram where he liked them. Um, he's liked pictures of them kissing each other. Ugh. Gross. They dress in drag. These, this is the couple that he chose to do his first, his first uh, blessing of a same-sex couple with. That's this is the direction that things are going to continue going with the Catholic Church. Ugh. I so Ugh. I mean, now am I'm I not. Loud? How loud am I? You seem fine to me. Okay, whatever. I. I think the uh, the humility point here would be the humble point here would be that it's just a matter of time before we start seeing this thing within the Orthodox Church. It's already beginning to happen on a on a smaller scale. It's going to continue to build. This sort of pressure is going to continue to build, and I guess um, I don't know. I, I just, I just want people to be prepared for it. I, just, I I want you guys to 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 be ready for it and not to have your faith shaken when it happens, because there's no question that it's going to happen. Things are going to get better. 
but they're going to get worse before they do. So, yeah, this is so this is part of the reason why I I'm not I'm not going to tap dance on Michael Lofton's grave too much. Like because he's Michael Lofton, he's he earns a decent amount of it. But at the end of the day, like there's going to be a time where if I'm making fun of Catholics for their Pope endorsing something like this, then the Orthodox, someone within the Orthodox church is going to turn around and do something like this. And we're going to have to own it at that point. Well, so. you had, um, um, what's the, uh, the Bishop of the Greek archdiocese. Elpidophorus. Yeah. Yeah. Elpidophoros. Mm-hmm. How do you pronounce it? I don't know how you pronounce it. I don't know. You're it's probably crazy more Greek. right than I am. I don't know. These Greek names. Yeah. They're not even not even real names. Um it's not even a real country. <laughs> yeah. Um he had that whole baptizing that was it like a like two men purchased a child and they got it baptized? Uh yeah. I think it was something like that or 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 they that might have adopted the child. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, so they purchased a child. Well, yeah, pur- I was thinking, I was thinking, uh, adopted versus, um, uh, what is it? Where they they have a they have a, a womb servant grow the kid for him. <laughs> oh yeah, witchcraft. You mean? <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> Surrogacy. <laughs> mm. I just saw your your comment uh, cable there. Cooper's right, but now he's got to be kicked off the show. He disagreed with the host. <laughs> uh, the OGs will get that one. <laughs> uh, anyways, so uh, that was the first thing that uh, we figured we just we we kind of had to talk about that because that was in the news here recently. Godparent? There. Wait. A random username is saying they were godparents, not their kid. Okay, so uh, you have a homosexual couple that's allegedly the godparents of a child okay so it was that sounds right okay yeah 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 yeah. so they they got the the kids it was the kids baptism and they were the godparents for for the kids baptism is that what it was something like that yeah in any case yeah there'll probably be more of that if i'm not mistaken he got he got uh like like censured for that didn't he didn't the archdiocese respond don't, to it, or I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happened because I don't really pay attention to things outside of the diocese I'm in. Right. I know a lot of people were upset by it, but then I know yeah. there's a lot of subversive types who are really lauding it as well. Right. And here, I, I guess it would be worth saying here because um, we've we've talked about this before, but this is probably one of those things where you and I have talked about it so much that we kind of take it for granted, but. It, this perspective may not be as common outside the two of us. Part of the reason why that sort of thing happening within the church doesn't like, I don't, I'm not up on all the details of it and I don't really know like the, the guy, I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name, but it doesn't really matter to me because it's not my responsibility to police my Bishop. My responsibility, and especially not somebody else, someone bishop. else's Bishop. Right. So it, it this is part of the the role of of uh, of an Orthodox Christian within the church is sure like there's some utility in understanding these sorts of things and being aware of them and knowing that they're happening, but it's not the role of it's not my role to go police the behavior of my bishop, much less somebody else's bishop. 
God's responsible for policing the behavior of the bishop. If he's a bishop, then he's oh, going yeah? to bear Oh, yeah? Well, what about the time where Pope St. Celestine lauded the the parishioners in Constantinople when Nestorius was preaching heresy and they, they left? What about that, Matt? Spurg. <laughs> right, right. That's not prescriptive for every single uh, uh, Orthodox Christian with respect to the bishop. You know, it just it would just be nonsense for that to be the case. If there's a case where your where your bishop is openly preaching heresy, then your responsibility isn't to follow him into heresy. You're going to be held responsible if you do follow him into heresy. At the same time, your responsibility is to obey him. So. Someone else's bishop doesn't. It doesn't mean anything to me. It, it's, it's. Oh yeah, but what about the me. one time when? I'm just kidding. <laughs> but so are you? Are you saying that if your bishop starts preaching preaching heresy, you, out of obedience, are required to follow him into heresy? No, I just said the opposite of that. Oh, okay. You're not required okay. to follow him into heresy. Because you'll you will be, if you follow him into heresy, you're going to be judged for following him into heresy. Uh-huh. But you'll also be judged if you are um, uh, rebelling against his authority. Um, you know, so this is it, it's it's a it's a it's a. What was the I thing don't know that about that. Stephen DeYoung said the other day. Where, I don't know about that. I mean, maybe maybe we're doing the thing that we don't like. Which is arguing theology, but Saint Ignatius of Antioch says that you'll be judged if you follow your bishop into heresy. Right. But then, uh, uh, so in other words, you should not follow your bishop into heresy. Yeah, you should not follow your bishop into heresy. At the same time, I think it was was it Saint Gabriel who said that if your spiritual father tells you to sin, you should obey him. No, that was Saint Sophroni. No, okay, no, 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 Saint Silouan, Saint Silouan, Saint Silouan. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was Saint Silouan. Yeah, yeah. So, how do you how do you balance these things? Listen to your priest. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And honestly, like to me, it's kind of it's it's a it's a relief. I don't say that to say that it's like oh well, the pressure's off of me. But it's like this these these are not these are things that are outside of my control. I don't need to control them. I'm going to be held responsible for the decisions that I make. And my responsibility is to operate within the domain of responsibility I've been given. Not to go outside of that. You know like if you think of the church hierarchy as as um like a bunch of nodes, there's nodes on this hierarchy. And if you get someone on on a certain level of the hierarchy, that steps outside where like that node goes offline because they're, they're like out of whack. Then if you have a bunch of other people who try to go out of step outside their responsibility to fill in for that person. Now, instead of having one node on the hierarchy out of whack, you've got a bunch of nodes all out of whack. And the hierarchy is even worse to have a stable hierarchy. People have to be responsible for the things that they're responsible for. And if you're exceptional at being responsible for the things within your particular domain, then you'll find yourself elevated within the hierarchy naturally. This holds within the church and within within hierarchies outside the church as well. Because they're all part of the same model. 
Your responsibility is to take care of the domain that's been entrusted to you and to respect the people who are in authority above you. This is why St. Paul says to obey the governing authorities. They've been put in positions of power by God. And they're going to be held responsible for the decisions that they make. Now, that doesn't mean that you... Like, I don't know how how anarchists or, like, libertarians get this somehow turned around in their head to where where we're like, St. Paul says to, to obey the governing authorities, but then they say, like, nobody should be governing authorities. Like... The governing authorities are going to exist, and St. Paul says to obey them. So it would naturally follow from that, that putting yourself in a position to become one of them would be a legitimate track for a Christian. St. Paul was traveling to Rome to go convert Nero. He wanted the emperor to be a Christian. I don't think that he was going to go say, hey, Nero, become a Christian and then resign as emperor. He was saying, become a Christian so we have a Christian emperor. So to have, this kind of goes back to the conversation we were having the other day about about, uh, Red Caesar, that in order to have the rise of strong, powerful, authoritative Christian leaders at the social level, it has to start on the personal level. You have to begin manifesting that spirit into the world. You have to have strong, powerful, authoritative Christian leaders establishing themselves in their day-to-day lives on a personal level. And the more that they do that, the more they will begin to manifest this on a social level, both in a, in a, like a spiritual sense and also just in like a natural financial, social, structural sense. Were you about to say something? No, just getting some blood flow, but blood flow into my into my ass cheeks. <laughs> I noticed that you gave up on the ASMR pretty quick. No, I just I was I was muting while I was chewing. Oh, okay. He's he was gonna he was gonna um give you guys the the experience of listening to him eat pretzels. No, 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 no. It was corn chips and salsa, of oh, which I did chips. eat this oh. entire jar. You well know, done. my mother in law made this and. She wrote on the lid that it's spicy salsa. You see, her tolerance for spicy things is mm-hmm. basically non-existent. Like a tiny bit of black pepper and she'll be like sweating and need like a gallon of milk. So when I read spicy, I was not expecting it to be very spicy. And I was correct. It was not very spicy. In fact, it was not spicy at all. But I'm sure it would have given her a heart attack. <laughs> Did she make it special for you? No, she probably just put like a little bit of pepper in it and was like, I'm giving this to I'm giving this to Cooper because <laughs> I don't want do you this. like spicy food. I do. Yeah. Like, yeah. are you like the more spice, the better? Yeah, generally up to a point, up to a point yeah. where like when you get to the point where you're not actually tasting anything, it's just like hot. <laughs> like your tongue goes numb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that. What's the point? But like, the issue yeah. is the spicy stuff usually gives me heartburn. Like, I like the way it, fla- it it tastes. It doesn't bother my mouth, but I get heartburn from it afterwards. I don't. I don't, I've had heartburn maybe like twice in my life. So, oh, you were a fortunate man. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the other big subject of late is the news about 
Trump and the state of Colorado removing or the the this sorry the Supreme Court for the state of Colorado <coughs> ruling that he is um uh ineligible under the 14th Amendment to be on uh the ballot for the presidential election and uh so it's going to go to the Supreme Court and my f- initial instinct is I would be absolutely shocked to see the Supreme Court not strike it down. However, I have learned my lesson from the events following 2020. And there, I thought that it was, there was no way that the Supreme Court was going to um, deny the the case on this, on a basis of, of lack of standing back then. I thought that I underestimated the uh, resilience of the system to be able to, to, uh, accommodate something like that. I thought that the Supreme Court turning that down would have been a lot more catastrophic than it actually was. So in this case here, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Supreme Court just just sidestep it. That's basically what they did before. I'm, I'm not married to one outcome or the other. I'm basically like, you know, I'm sitting here with popcorn. I think it's fascinating. It's great we get to live in... in in uh, wild times, honestly, I kind of the the I guess the the inner anarchist or accelerationist in me kind of wants to see the Supreme Court say, yeah, yeah we're not touching it. You guys, you guys deal with it yourselves. Part of me kind of wants to see that because I want to see. Um, it seems like it would be more interesting than just having the Supreme Court say, no, no, yes, be on it, and then we just kind of get just it proceeds with the election as normal. Um, Shortly after this, the obvious thing happened. Uh, there was people who were like freaking out about this, but I was like, how did you not see this? Like, this is transparently exactly what's going to happen. How is this a surprise and a shock to you? Uh, the, it was the Lieutenant governor of California issued like a memo or whatever, and basically told the, the California government that they need to, to explore every possible legal means of removing Trump from the ballot in California on the basis of the Colorado ruling and uh which i thought was was it was interesting to me that it was as bald-faced as that where she's literally just said she literally used the terms like explore every legal means possible of removing him um the the other funny thing was part of it she said like at the end of the of that statement she said um it is that the, the constitution is clear in order to uh, to be eligible to be the president, you have to be at least 40 years old and have not engaged in violence against the government or something like that. And she's I never was, read that thing. I was even surprised that they would make th- that fundamental and basic of a factual error, like 40 years old instead of 35 years old. Like these sorts of statements, they get proofread by people. There's multiple people that put this, that it, it passes in front of, and somehow not a single one of them caught. Like you learned this very early on in school, and especially when these people gr- were growing up. Like the the chick's probably in her forties or fifties, so she definitely would have learned very early on in school that you have to be thirty five to be president. I, I, Could you imagine, Matt? Look at you. You're thirty five. Yeah, I guess I'm eligible. To, I'm eligible to be president. Yeah, yeah. Do you think I I've just lived my whole life with presidents who are like. 
a million years old. So the idea of somebody your age being president is like, I can't even conceive of that. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a horrible idea. Oh yeah, it does. <laughs> well, now with our with our modern stock, maybe you know, sixty, seventy years ago, thirty five year old men were you know. So JFK was the youngest. He was forty three when he was elected. So JFK was eight years older than I am now. Damn, interesting. The lieutenant governor of California is Greek Orthodox. Hmm. That I did not know. Um, so is Tom Hanks. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. Because his wife, shame. his wife is Greek. And I think oh, when I he did got know married that. to her, he converted. But, you know, he okay. eats babies and stuff, so. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, random username says constitutionally the state runs the elections 2020 SCOTUS already said the same thing again by rejecting to hear Texas versus Pennsylvania yeah in this case it's a little different than that I'm going to read a, a couple different threads here um, that I found interesting on the subject uh, he says lieutenant governor of Texas is talking about removing Biden from the ballot now for the same logic only hope SCOTUS gets involved is if the right strikes the left um, I think that I think there's some truth to that I, and actually one of the threads touches on that so uh, real quick here. Okay, so let me share the screen. Uh, Jarvis, where is this? There it is. Okay. So this guy is BRB. Okay, this guy's from the uh, like what would it, what would you call it? It's like the circle of Twitter that is um. Like baseball crank Dan McLaughlin and uh, Red Steez and uh, John Gabriel, so they're like they're like young conservatarians kind of. They're all they're mostly Gen Xers. A lot of them are lawyers and stuff. He's in that whole circle. He's a uh, a lawyer in Colorado. So he said he did a quick thread on this after reading the the entire. Uh, ruling or the, the statement and all the uh um the dissents and everything from uh the colorado court what's up disgruntled docs uh, and so he this is he gave his opinion on it so he says there's five judicial opinions out of colorado on this trump ballot thing the trial court opinion the supreme court majority opinion and three supreme court dissenting opinions none of the opinions agree with each other except maybe the dissenting opinions of chief justice boatwright and justice birkencotter the most compelling and, in my view, correct decision was the dissent from Justice Samour. Justice Samour reached holdings that none of the other four groups did. He examined the issues with the depth and close examination of the case law that is most like how SCOTUS does it. I think SCOTUS will reverse the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court and will largely follow the dissent of Justice Samour. I think the SCOTUS decision will be either 9-0 nine, nine or 7-2. When the SCOTUS does so, I'll remind you of this tweet and gloat. There will be no dealing with me after that. He says, before we get to Justice Samour, first some background on the Colorado Supreme Court. They're not typically a deeply divided or partisan court. They're all Democrats, and they were all appointed by Democrat governors with similar liberal slash libertarian leanings. We get a lot of unanimous opinions. Divisions, when they occur, are typically respectful and intellectually honest. No vitriol. I thought this was interesting as a background because I, I don't know diddly shit about the Colorado Supreme Court. 
I was surprised that this case was a 4-3 opinion and even more surprised at how sloppy the majority opinion was. Knowing that SCOTUS absolutely has to take this case, I figured they would write something stronger. Ah, uh, well. This here, I could see very well this being the, uh, the conservative, uh, always underestimating just how deranged the regime is willing to behave. Um, in other words, he's making the same mistake that I made in 2020, where I was like, there's no way that the Supreme Court's not going to take this case. They're, like, they're going to have to. And I just underestimated the, the, the will to be able to just say, nope, and just have everything just continue as is. Um, you know, it's like in, in uh, anticipation, you're like, you know, expecting that the majority opinion, you're, you're like, well, no, there's no way that they could actually have this be 4-3. It's just so unreasonable to actually fall on this. Well, then the court actually makes this super unreasonable decision that happens to really benefit Democrats. And then people go, um, you know, wow, I can't believe how sloppy that majority opinion was. Well, yeah, now now it's the majority opinion, and it's sloppy, and you can complain about it being sloppy all you want, but that doesn't change the fact that that is what the opinion was. One more tweet about Justice Samur before we get to the law stuff. He was born and raised in El Salvador, but fled the country at the age of 13 due to the risk of civil war. Not necessarily relevant, but maybe it is. Okay, on to the law stuff. So the guy who, just to make it clear, this Justice Samur he's talking about is a Democrat, appointed by a Democrat, um, who grew up in El Salvador and fled the country at 13 due to the risk of civil war. He says, this case is about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Passed in the aftermath of the Civil War, Section 3 says that insurrectionists cannot hold certain offices. The trial court held that Section 3 did not apply to the president, and the trial court might be right. Justice Samur did not need to resolve that issue, though. And he's got the text of Section 3 of, of for the 14th Amendment, which says, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, that's the key phrase right there, as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So the just remember this phrase, or as an officer of the United States, because we'll come back to that later on. Because of Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, that section says, hey, you know the whole insurrection thing we just talked about? How is this supposed to work? Who gets to decide who engaged in an insurrection? What sort of standard of proof applies? Is it a civil trial or a criminal trial? Is it a judge or a jury or someone else who decides that a particular person engaged in insurrection and therefore disqualified? What if they're already appointed? Do they still get paid while the proceedings are going on? The 14th Amendment doesn't answer any of these questions. Instead, Section 5 says that Congress gets to pass legislation to give enforcement power to carry out Section 3. And Congress did just that. Justice Samour points out that in 1870, Congress passed a law that allowed for both civil and criminal enforcement of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. This law was then repealed and replaced in, in 1948. Uh, and he has, gives the text of the law here. I'm not going to read it right now. 1948, Congress replaced the 1870 statute with a criminal insurrection law. If convicted under that statute, with full criminal due process afforded the defendant, one of the punishments is to be banned from holding office in the United States. Trump has not been charged under this statute. So I'll say here, well, that I don't know if that's necessarily could. 
is still in question. You know, if he's not been charged under the statute and they need him to be charged under the statute in order to apply this, then, you know, perhaps he gets charged under that statute. Um, so he says, so Congress and only Congress gets to pass legislation enforcing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Congress did so, and it chose to enact a criminal statute that bars anyone convicted under it from holding any office in the U.S. Trump has not been charged or convicted under that statute. Therefore, Trump can appear on the ballot. That's pretty much it. There is case law backing up all of this analysis. Justice Samour engaged in a lengthy discussion of Griffin's case, but I'll let you read that for yourself. I predict that SCOTUS will heavily cite Griffin's case in its decision reversing Colorado. This analysis renders a lot of the other questions irrelevant. Did Trump, Trump engage in insurrection? Does Section 3 apply to the president? Should Trump be off the ballot nationwide or just in states like Colorado that found they engaged in insurrection? None of that matters. The only thing that matters is that Congress followed the 14th Amendment and established a procedure for barring someone from office for engaging in an insurrection, and that procedure was not followed here. He says, all right, back to pornography. Um, so now this, this is very much an example of the conservative impulse to say, look, there's a particular procedure for this, and they didn't follow that particular procedure, so they're not allowed to do the thing, which can be very easily hand-waved away. This is where you get the conservatives who stand athwart history yelling stop, and history just rolls on without them. I think it's entirely plausible that that's how this proceeds, and whenever the Supreme Court either denies to take up the case or uh, they take it up and they affirm it, then he's going to point back to this and say, "Ha! Ah, how can they do this? They can't do that. It's this is there's a procedural thing that was they, were, they didn't check this particular box before they went about it." And it's like, yeah, the 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 freaking decisions made already, man. It, like all you're doing is just getting the legal rigmarole put into 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 uh, place to get the outcome that we want. And if it's not there, then we're just gonna just rubber stamp it and pass it on through. This is how the this is exactly what happened in 2020. And I wouldn't be shocked to see them attempt that same thing here. Yeah, they're just going to do it anyway. Now, what's interesting about that is that that is going to be a major, major black pill for this type of guy. And this type of guy is very key to the continued functioning of the system. The Gen X... Uh, like probably a, a a fairly seasoned lawyer who's um <coughs> uh, you know classically liberal who like these are the guys these are the national review guys these are the guys who um these these guys are basically kind of like the sinews that are holding everything together when these guys get blackpilled when they check out of the system that's when the system is is um going to really transform into something else. So I think this is interesting to watch for this reason, to see just how brazen they're going to be. Because I think from a legal perspective, to the extent that there are still lawyers who want to do law and respect the history of law, because there's still plenty of those people out there. I think, I think most of the justices in the Supreme Court see themselves that way. They see themselves as people who want to do serious law. And what he's pointing out is very um, like legitimate from the a history of case law perspective. So to the extent that people still want to be a serious civilization and do actual law, to just ramrod this on through would be a pretty significant matter. And that's going to be very blackpilling to 
the type of guy who like he's this guy's not a Trump guy. I think he's probably a DeSantis guy. So I'm kind of rooting for the Supreme Court to just just refuse to even entertain it just to see what it does to the minds of these sorts of guys. That's going to be a big, like, here's what time it is sort of moment for those guys. And those, these are like, I keep saying guys a lot. These are the guys that have the hardest time seeing what time it is. Yep. Um, so for a slightly different perspective, um, I mentioned that thing about the office of the, um, or, or officers, presidents being, what was the specific phrasing back here? It said, um, as an officer of the United States. So that's one of the things that he, he mentioned that the, the point that Justice Samour was making, it, it renders this conversation irrelevant because he's, to summarize it again, what this justice's dissenting opinion is, is that, well, there's a specific protocol that you, t you undertake to convict someone of an insurrection and that protocol was not followed. So it just, the whole, the whole question is moot. If, the, if that, there wasn't a protocol existing, then we could establish a new one, but there is an existing protocol. So um, that question is moot. That's what he's saying. This guy's case or this guy's uh, opinion is. Um, but in one of the other arguments is about this phrase here as an officer of the United States. So let me stop sharing here and share this one. So this guy said, so he's sharing an article from Slate. Larry Lessig, no Trump fan, thinks the Colorado decision is garbage. Quoting from the article, it says, if that court is to preserve its integrity, it must unanimously reject the Colorado Supreme Court's judgment because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not apply to Donald Trump. He says, the crux of Lessig's argument is that Section 3 doesn't, can't, and shouldn't apply to the president and vice president because otherwise Joe Biden wouldn't make the ballot in any red state, and that's the end of the republic. So this is an interesting, if, if we assume that the Colorado rule oh, stands. I hope that happens. Then here's, Let's just nuke here's, it all, man. Here's a, here's a potential downstream effect of that. And this is what nuke Random Username all. just mentioned a minute ago. So now reading from the article. Law professor Kurt Lash has shown that the- What's that section... uh, Civil War movie that's coming out? <laughs> yeah, right. Is this how this, this happens? Is, this could be how it happens, yeah. So law professor Kurt Lash has shown that the crafting of Section 3 to omit the president was not an oversight. As his work shows, an earlier draft of the clause expressly mentioned the president. That mention was removed. And many digital trees have been felled to address a related issue, whether the president is properly described as occupying an office of the United States. At best, that word work is ambiguous, though the Colorado Supreme Court made a strong argument that the president is. So what part of what's being debated here is when it says an officer of the United States, what is an officer? What, what can be considered an officer? And my understanding is that it's generally been held that officers are appointed to their position, not elected. If you're elected, you're something different. An officer would be someone um, who, was, who was appointed by the president, for example. So someone like that, if they had been engaged in insurrection, then they wouldn't be eligible. But as a president, you're not considered an officer. That's one of the legal, legal positions here. But what is not ambiguous, back to the, the text here, 
But what is not ambiguous is whether it would be absurd to exclude the president from the reach of Section 3, because it is plainly not absurd. Indeed, excluding the president and vice president from the scope of the clause makes perfect sense. Lash argues that it could make sense because the framers of that clause likely expected it to apply to civil war insurrectionists alone. No one, he argues, feared an insurrectionist presidential candidate after 1865. What they feared was insurrectionists in Congress. Other parts of the 14th Amendment are plausibly read as targeting the Civil War alone. This clause on that understanding could be so read as well. One thing I'd like to just point out here is it's fascinating when you start reading about the history of law and, and you read legal opinions and the way that law is treated and everything, the extent to which it is all a matter of opinion and consensus. I mean, like judges' rulings are referred to as opinions. This isn't like, you know, like a, a voice from God inscribed on a rock. And most people relate to law as being, um, in some sense, some sort of like objective thing, but it's entirely subjective, especially when you start listening, like, like uh, they'll read into things like, uh, these other parts of the 14th Amendment are plausibly read as targeting the Civil War alone, so we're going to use that frame of mind to interpret and understand this part, that this might be just targeting the Civil War as well. This sort of inference and opinion and everything, like this is, this is all that law is based upon in, the, in, in, in its practice. So if it's just based upon opinion and interpretation and consensus, that should be a big uh, signal to you that it's ultimately just power. Is just rooted in power. You can have all the nice words you want on the page. The power and who wields the power is what matters. Back to the text here. But even if one assumes that Section 3 was meant to be prospective, so looking, looking forward, there is an obvious reason why the only two nationally elected officers would be excluded from its reach. It took mere moments after the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling to see why, as Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick threatened to remove Joe Biden from the Texas ballot as retribution. You see, with every other officer excluded under the provision, the state official or state court affecting that exclusion would feel the political costs of their decision alone. If the Missouri Secretary of State decides that Josh Hawley was an insurrectionist for both advancing a plainly illegal theory under which Congress could reverse the electoral votes of Pennsylvania and for rallying the rioters on January 6th with his now infamous salute, then Missouri and its voters will bear the political costs of that decision alone. Its act would not impose a cost on other states. But if state officials from blue states can remove red state candidates, or vice versa, that state bears no cost. Instead, it gains a political victory. In the language of economics, the decision imposes an externality on the nation, which is exactly the kind of decision that states alone should not be making for other states. Such behavior is obvious to lead to a tit-for-tat and a breakdown of our entire electoral system. Sweet. Sign me up. All right, so... Now that everybody listening has a gigantic boner, <laughs> I think this I think this whole thing is fascinating. I, 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 I'm definitely going to follow this, keep track of it, watch what's happening. And I don't have a I don't really have a dog in the fight. Like, like, what's the worst that's going to happen? It's just going to turn into just a normal presidential election and it's going to be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump and someone's going to get elected and the difference. OK, whatever. You know, the world's going to go on. I don't I'm. On one hand, things continue as per usual, and we go about our lives. And on the other hand, things get really interesting. But this is definitely an issue, obviously, that strikes right at the heart of the 
founding principles of the nation. Our democracy. Our democracy mm-hmm. and federalism. And objectively, like from a historical perspective, like looking back a hundred years, people could look back now and, and be like, wow, this is that's a, a really interesting time to live through. There's a lot of really interesting historical stuff. Like if you were reading about this in if this has happened in the past and you were reading about it, it'd be a pretty interesting thing to be a, a student of, a student of the history of Donald Trump's America or whatever. All right. Well, um, I don't think, well, there's one other, there's one other thing here that, let's see. Um, an hour, let's see what time is it? Yeah, we'll, we'll get into this here. This will be interesting. Just for history nerds. So Tom Elliott did a, did a pretty interesting thread here on the story of the 14th Amendment. And um, so he said, the 14th Amendment has always been intended to empower Washington to lord over states, although even its authors never intended for it to go as far as it has. With federal judges over the last hundred years having decided, it actually enables them to nullify state laws they dislike. After the Civil War, Lincoln's Republican Party controlled Congress, in large part due to federal officers arresting anyone speaking on behalf of Democrats. And seeking to adopt the 14th Amendment, they prevented Southern states' congressional representation unless they ratified the 14th Amendment. Despite being blackmailed, every Southern state except Tennessee voted against the 14th Amendment. Congress responded by passing the Reconstruction Act of 1867, which established a comprehensive military dictatorship to run the governments of each of the 10 states, that were not yet back in the United States. Quoting from Thomas DiLorenzo's must-read book, The Real Lincoln. That is a very good book. I read it back in my my ardent libertarian days. And it it's funny having having uh I tweeted something about this the other day. I I went from being a typical neocon, whatever growing up and being like, oh, Abraham Lincoln, to being an ANCAP and being like, oh, Abraham Lincoln to now being kind of like, eh, Abraham Lincoln? Yeah. Meh, I mean, meh. like... It's all right. Like one he of the, did some... Yeah, you like know, he persecuted journalists. Journalists, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, he... like he, not he, too uh, bad. He went after the New York Times. He did, he did some pretty good stuff. You know, I kind of... You know, like, being kind of cured of my... The uh, War of Northern obsession. Aggression. Yeah. Being kind of cured of my obsession with decentralization has made me have a deeper appreciation for these sort of authoritarian figures. I kind of, I understand their vision a little bit more now that I'm not, you know, essentially a commie. And, and that's part of the problem is that, and this is, this is where, you know, I live in Texas, so I have to be careful saying this sort of thing. And I, I deeply appreciate my Southern brothers and I hold just as much contempt as they do for for Yankees, I, 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 I feel their pain. Um, at the same time, the biggest issue with the South was that they were kind of commies. That was the, the entire, uh, like Jefferson, Jefferson was, was, uh, would have been a huge fan of Lenin. The two of them would have gotten along very well. There wasn't, you, you, you can have your, your heritage, and I appreciate that, and that's great and everything, but the entire political project of the South was essentially just a precursor for communism. So, yeah, Brody says Baptist commies. <laughs> so, like, the 
in hindsight, it's like, yeah, you guys lost and you, you inevitably were going to like, it was just, it's a shame that it happened that way. And, and the Yankees are probably worse, but now they're definitely worse. Yankees are definitely worse than Southerners. And I love Southern culture and I would have much rather have lived in the South than in the North at the time. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, kind of a no real, no good guys, uh, sort of a thing from my perspective in hindsight anyways. So, uh, but it is very interesting to look back and read this, this, so this book by Thomas DiLorenzo, where he, he depicts what happened throughout reconstruction. Cause that's something that very conveniently, uh, we weren't taught a lot growing up exactly what happened. Everything is, is kind of just delivered in glowing terms and you know, em- emphasizing all the stuff about slavery. And, and uh, so basically anything was justifiable because ah, slavery, but from like a, a military history sort of way, like the, like studying the way that a conquering army can completely subjugate and stomp the life out of an occupied territory. And then, incorporate that territory and establish a government that that is built on the subjugation of it and th- that whole thing it's a, it's that's very much what happened with the 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 reconstruction era so this is this stuff is all very interesting to me uh so ending these military dictatorships was conditional upon states ratifying the 14th amendment which makes sense this is how if you're if your goal is to instantiate the power of your government and you have these um uh, rebellious, uh, vassal states, then yeah, you're going to get them by the balls and force them to sign on to the legislation that you want. And if they do, then you'll take away the, you'll use the, the carrot instead of the stick. During this time, the union prevented anyone affiliated with the Confederacy from registering to vote. Even those who bought Confederacy bonds or donated food and clothing to former soldiers. Indeed, in order to be allowed to vote, Southerners were were required to publicly pledge their allegiance for the federal army. Meanwhile, a great number of tax dollars were spent registering ex-slaves as voters and coaching them to vote Republican. Blacks in the North, meanwhile, were still prevented from voting. The federal military dictatorships running Southern states removed state municipal officials whenever they acted out lockstep with the acted out of lockstep with the Republican Party, replacing them with efficient union, i.e., Republican Party men. After several years of this, Southern states' new puppet governments finally voted to ratify the 14th Amendment. But here's where it gets interesting. Having witnessed all this tyrannical behavior from Republicans, New Jersey and Ohio voted to revoke their previous ratifications of the 14th Amendment. Congress needs three-fourths of states to ratify an amendment, but was never able to secure enough support from the requisite 28 states. Only 20 states voted to ratify it outright. No matter, Congress simply passed a joint resolution proclaiming the 14th Amendment ratified. In short, the 14th Amendment has never actually been officially ratified. So I think this is very instructive for what's happening right now. We go back to that other thread. The guy's talking about, oh, oh there's this procedural thing. They didn't follow the procedural thing. So this whole thing has to be unwound. Here, there's a procedural thing where they're adding a fucking amendment to the Constitution. And they can't get three quarters of the states to do it. So Congress we'll just, just says, do it. it's ratified. Just, <laughs> we'll just say it is. We'll just say it is and act like it is. Uh, all right. <laughs> Good enough. Yeah, what are you going to do? Lose another right. war to us? That's right. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <clears throat> he says, 
And yet it's been used to completely invert the entire nature of our Constitution, transposing the United States from a decentralized federal republic into a highly centralized nation state. As odious as the 14th Amendment is, it was never intended to give federal judges the power to strike down state laws they claim violate the Bill of Rights, which applies not to states, but to the federal government. Otherwise, the ratifiers would have had to also repeal the 10th and 11th Amendments. Hmm. I guess writing everything down on paper and expecting it to just work out doesn't work out. I mean, don't know what to tell you, man. For decades, the Supreme Court upheld this view that the 14th Amendment never incorporated the Bill of Rights on states. See, for example, the slaughterhouse cases. But during the progressive era, federal judges began reimagining the amendment to give them almost total power over states. Huh, imagine that. And unfortunately, that view has dominated for the last century, which, as I've explained elsewhere, is the source of almost all of the division currently destroying the United States. Oh, so all we have to do is we just have to overturn uh, a century of precedent, go go in the anti-progressive direction, and go back and, what, like, ratify the 14th? So, like, okay, so they go back and they ratify the 14th Amendment, and then they accept everything that comes after it. Like, <laughs> that's, all they would, that's all they would do if you were going to force them to do that. So, so honestly, it's kind of, uh, it's almost like uh, uh, they're doing us a favor. They're not going to drag us through the whole political rigmarole to just get the same exact outcome in the long run anyways. The 14th Amendment has always been about subjugation. That it's now being used to rob Americans of their choice of a presidential candidate is in keeping with its sordid history. Um, okay. Um, so that... I shared that. Oh, this is why. So, um, oh man. One of the things that's really annoying about Twitter now is they have this like show more, but you have to actually click the thing to open it. So then you have to go back a whole bunch of times if you're trying to get back to an original quote tweet. All right. So Nate Fisher here, I thought this was, this is a, a valuable observation. He said a reminder that the 1789 constitution was supplanted long ago. America has had several constitutions. This is a, this is a very mold buggy and observation. Just as Augustus went to great lengths to show continuity with the Roman Republic, successive American regimes have made a show of continuity with the original Constitution, unlike the French, who unapologetically numbered their different republics. But we shouldn't mistake the fact that these were nonetheless radical changes to the form and substance of government. And uh, with respect to the, the subject about um, the 14th Amendment was never ratified, and um, we've just existed with it being ratified, and so then... Um, you know, maybe we just, uh, oh, it's never been ratified, so we have to undo all the stuff that's been built on that precedent. Um, Baseball Crank, who uh, is, I think he's right when he says this. He's he's a kind of a goofball conservative, National Review conservative. But um, with respect to that, he said that that's not going to, to challenge the ratification of the 14th Amendment is never going to fly because we've treated it as binding law for 155 years. Um, and... So Nate Fisher said the current SCOTUS won't reverse 155 years of precedent, but it could be a reasonable way for a successor regime to substantially change the operative constitution without an amendment while staying formally within the procedural bounds of the founding constitution. This is thinking more Machiavelli Machiavellianly, but this is the key point. Obvious, as with Lincoln, this won't be a question of law, but of power. In order to even begin to do something like this, it's going to require power. And that's mm -hmm. not something that the right wing is very close to being able to exercise right now. Uh, so, yeah. 
I think that was basically all that I had. I had another thread about uh, economic stuff, but I'm starting to lose my voice. I can feel it. So we should probably get wrapping here. Thank you guys for, uh, for showing up. Appreciate all of you. It's almost Christmas. I think we'll try to do, try to do another show between. So Christmas is Monday. We'll try to do another show between now and then. Um, TD Jake is a homosexual. Yeah. Apparently he's a power bottom. Yeah. Uh, let me see these comments. Okay. I didn't miss anything. All right. Well, thank you guys. Sorry for the, uh, somewhat scatterbrained show today. My, uh, my brain feels like moldy oatmeal and my voice is headed down the, down the tubes. So <coughs> please like share, <coughs> you know, the YouTube stuff like share and subscribe and, uh, um, <laughs> follow me on Twitter at real King Pilled. follow Cooper at Cooper Brooks and come join us in the King Pilled voice chat. I don't know if I'm actually going to be able to do the voice chat tonight, but if I'm not talking nonstop, then it might be a little bit better. So I'll try and hop on there a little bit later. Subscribestar.com slash kingpilled. We'd love to see you guys in there. We've got a good group of people. And uh, yeah, we appreciate all of you. Anything you want to say, Cooper? Deuces. Later. <laughs>